Okay, I think it's time for us to get started for our second panel. Welcome back to our second panel, Religion and Pluralist Liberal Democracy. Is that working? Is this working? Can you hear me okay? Speak louder? Okay. It's good to see you all back here. And um, we're going to make sure at the end of this session that we leave enough time for questions and answers. I know a number of you feel like you haven't had a chance to ask questions that you've had since this morning's uh, first session. So we will make sure that we uh, allocate sufficient time for Q&A at the end. Um, once again, we've got a stellar panel, and it's a real pleasure to introduce uh, Professor William Galston to you as our uh, speaker. Um, he's at the University of Maryland, where he um, directs a number of centers there. Um, he um, is the Saul Stern Professor of Public Affairs and directs the Institute for Philosophy and Public uh, Policy. He has written a number of books and many articles. He's uh, no, noted to many of us, though, because of his uh, ongoing work in politics. He was in the Clinton administration, and he also worked um, in the campaigns of uh, Walter Mondale, as well as, well as Albert Gore uh, as a policy uh, advisor on domestic affairs. Um, he's written at length about religion, and it's very good to have him with us to kick us off in our second session. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm doing this sitting because I'm told that the microphone up there is not, is, is, is not functioning well. Uh, it's already been an extraordinary conversation since this uh, symposium began, and I want to extend my personal thanks to the organizers for allowing me to participate. It's an honor. Uh, you know, Professor Weiler, uh, just a few minutes ago, talked about some of the ambiguous phrases in uh, the preamble to the, the EU's constitution. There are lots of other examples of that. Uh, for example, uh, around the time of the founding of the State of Israel, there was a big debate about what the language of the Israeli Declaration of Independence would, would be. And after a ferocious debate between the faithful and the anything but faithful, it was decided that the operative phrase would be the rock of Israel. Um, and, of course, for the faithful, that meant God. And uh, for the secularists, it meant the Israeli army. Uh, <laughs> true story. Well, I want to, you know, an elegant compromise, by the way, that has endured to this day. Uh, I want to suggest, as a way of getting this conversation started, uh, that you know, as we consider the nakedness or partial clothedness of the public square, uh, that we, we recall that this is not an abstract philosophical conversation that we're having. You know, we are talking about religion and politics, which is preeminently a political question. Indeed, it may be the preeminent political question. And I would suggest that there is no such thing as religion in general, any more than there is any such thing as politics in general. And I think in order to clear our minds, it is essential to get down to cases. And so I want to put a couple on the table in this time. 
uh, not to preempt the discussion, but to provoke it. Uh, as some of you know, I've spent 20 mostly feudal years trying to convince liberal political philosophers in the academy, of whom I'm one, as well as my fellow members of the Democratic Party, uh, that there is much of value uh, to a much more open-minded dialogue with people and communities of faith. But I want to suggest that there is a right way and a wrong way of manifesting faith, whether individual or communal, in the public square. Uh, Professor Weiler argued, I think, quite persuasively a few minutes ago that the proposed preambular language in the EU Constitution should not have generated any exclusionary feelings on the part of Jews or Muslims. And I must say, as he presented that case, I tended to agree with him. But let me offer a different case. Uh, and it goes back to the conversation that launched this uh, meeting this morning, uh, Professor Schlesinger's remarks. He suggested in any number of ways that as President George W. Bush has crossed a line that he shouldn't have crossed. Uh, I think he was not able to define that line very persuasively. Uh, but let me put an example on the table to see whether it helps. As a president about to be inaugurated, uh, George Bush chose to deliver the invocation at his inaugural, one Franklin Graham, son of Billy Graham, someone who was already famous for invoking the name of Jesus Christ on public occasions. And Franklin Graham made it very, very clear that he intended to do so on this occasion, and he proceeded to do so. We should ask ourselves the question, was that the crossing of a line? And if so, how do we understand that line? My answer is that yes, that did amount to the crossing of a line, and perhaps by the end of this hour and a half, we'll have a somewhat clearer sense of why that might or might not be so. Another case, which takes us a little bit farther. Uh, I was brought up in the most secular circumstances imaginable. Uh, to give you one example, uh, my maternal grandfather was one of the lawyers uh, in the Rosenberg case. I'll put this as delicately as possible. He was not on the government's side. Uh, uh, but as I held my infant son in my arms nearly half a century later, um, I had occasion to reflect that I was holding the great-grandson of an Orthodox rabbi. That realization and many others uh, launched me on a voyage of discovery. Uh, I am not a traditional Jew. I wasn't then uh, or now. Uh, but I did feel an obligation to explore what is, after all, my tradition. And this paper is in part a report on a dimension of that exploration. But 
let me begin where I think it's appropriate to begin with the guest of honor. Uh, in order to prepare for this conference and to write my paper, uh, I went back to uh, Father Newhouse's book, The Naked Public Square, after, after a hiatus of almost 20 years. The book I encountered was not quite the book I remembered. I see more clearly now than I did then that Father Newhouse was waging, in fact, a two-front war uh, against moral majoritarian fundamentalism, already by the early 1980s a rising political and cultural force, on the one hand, as well as aggressive secularism on the other. And he advocated a principled via media, an account of Christianity as, quote, public truth accessible to, quote, public reason. Now, as I think many of you know, in, in the intervening two decades, the issue of public reason has been intensely debated, largely under the influence of John Rawls. Well, when I returned to Newhouse's work, I was surprised to discover that his account of public reason bears more than a passing resemblance to Rawls's. Newhouse, in 1984, criticized the religious new right for, quote, making public claims on the basis of private truths, close quote. The integrity of politics, he said, requires us to resist all such proposals. Public decisions, he insists, must be made through arguments that are, quote, public in character. And he continues, a public argument is trans-subjective. It is not derived from sources of revelation or disposition that are essentially private and arbitrary. Accordingly, those who want to bring religiously-based values into the public square have an obligation to translate those values into terms that are as accessible as possible to those who do not share the same grounding. Now, there are many ambiguities in this account of public reason, which I explore at some length in my paper, but I will spare you the details in order to get on to the main show. Uh, Father Newhouse affirms what I think it is fair to call a unitary account of reason, that is, an, anti -plural, an explicitly anti-pluralist account that affirms the capacity of reason to reach singular truths on a wide range of important philosophical, moral, and political questions. Now, this raises the stakes for reason very substantially, and the stakes are higher still if one simultaneously affirms a unitary account of reason and brings religion under the canopy of reason. This is what I understand Father Newhouse to have done in the naked public square. And fortunately, this isn't a paper about Aristotle. Uh, if I'm wrong, Father Newhouse is here to correct me, and some of what follows will be rendered irrelevant. I don't mean to suggest that Father Newhouse is not Aristotle's equal, but only that uh, you know, he is vivified in the way that Aristotle is not. Uh, you know, you know <laughs> in the uh, strongest form, in the strongest form, the rationality of religion thesis suggests that reason suffices to decide the issue between, say, Christianity and Judaism. This stance, 
is reminiscent of the assumption underlying medieval disputations among faiths, such as the one so memorably imagined in Judah Halevi's The Kuzari. Among many other difficulties, this thesis is contestable on theological grounds. Within Judaism, the faith tradition I know best, it is customary to distinguish, as, for example, Maimonides does, between religious commandments that reason is fully competent to justify and others the force of which is rooted at least in part in revelation. The former constitute a kind of generic religion of reason, which some scholars regard as the Jewish version of natural law. But the latter, I would suggest, define the beliefs and practices that constitute the distinctiveness of Judaism. My impression, subject to correction, I am certainly not a theologian, is that most other faith traditions either explicitly embrace or tacitly rely upon some version of this distinction, and that many of these traditions define a scope for reason narrower than that in rabbinic Judaism, and by extension, much narrower than the strong natural law position Father Newhouse appears to embrace. And what I, what I want to suggest and do suggest in the body of my paper is that this theological problem, the relationship between generality and particularity within individual faith traditions and between or among those faith traditions, is likely to spill over into politics if divisive issues of law and policy turn out to rest on religious differences that are rooted in what faiths regard as authoritatively revealed truth and that reason cannot adjudicate. What I do in the body of my paper is to put on the table an example of that kind of controversy. Uh, and to motivate this, I'll begin with an anecdote that occurred uh, just a few years ago. Uh, Baltimore's William Cardinal Keeler was appearing on a panel with, among other, uh, among other people, uh, a fairly conservative Protestant theologian and an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. The topic of the panel was human cloning and cloning research. Now, in the past 10 or 20 years, as many of you know, a kind of traditionalist entente has grown up across the lines that used to separate faith communities. And for some purposes, traditional Catholics, uh, many evangelical or fundamentalist Protestants, and traditionalist Jews have made common cause across these traditional lines against a progressivist coalition, if you will, of people who are liberal Catholics, mainline Protestants, and Reformed Jews on a number of contested public policy issues, including issues implicating social and family values. And on this occasion, a Cardinal Keeler was very surprised to discover that in contrast to his own prohibitionist stance shared by the forum's Protestant representatives, the Orthodox rabbi, to put it gently, refrained from issuing a blanket condemnation of the practice of cloning. Had Cardinal Keeler been moved to inquire farther, 
he would have found that the rabbi had spoken for the mainstream of Orthodox Jewry and that his accommodationist stance towards cloning was deeply rooted in the fundamentals of Jewish theology. Let me try to explain. I will take as my text for this little sermon a statement on cloning issued in the year 2002 by the Orthodox Union, a group involved in public policy advocacy on, the, on behalf of the Orthodox Jewish community. And it reads in part as follows. Our Torah tradition places great value on human life. We are taught in the opening chapters of Genesis that each human life was created in God's image. After creating man and woman, God empowered them to enter into a partnership with him in the stewardship of this world. The Torah commands us to treat and cure the ill and to defeat disease wherever possible. To do this is to be the creator's partner, partner in safeguarding the created. The traditional Jewish perspective thus emphasizes that maximizing the potential to save and heal human lives is an integral part of valuing human life. Moreover, our tradition states that an embryo in vitro does not enjoy the full status of humanhood and its attendant protections. Thus, if cloning technology research advances our ability to heal humans with greater success, it ought to be pursued since it does not require or encourage the destruction of human life in the process. Now, this is a highly compressed theological statement, uh, and let me very quickly try to decompose it into four propositions for your consideration. The first is a distinctively Jewish interpretation of what it means for human beings to be created in the image of God. The image of God that is appealed to is the image of God as creator. And the idea of man in the image of God is therefore man as co-creator. And this is an idea of human beings that spills over not only in the stance towards revealed law, where human co-creation through rational disputation, call it Jewish common law, if you will, is an essential part of the Jewish tradition, not secondary, subordinated, or adventitious part, but also spills over into the attitude towards nature, where nature is regarded as the raw material that God has placed, uh, that has, uh, God has created for the, you know, in order to permit human improvement uh, in an act of co-creation. That's the first proposition. The second proposition is the extremely high value in the Jewish tradition attached to healing the sick and alleviating suffering. I could go on for hours about this. Suffice it to say that the most solemn laws of the Sabbath may be violated in order to heal or to save life. All of the stringent prohibitions that Orthodox Jews are required to follow, almost without exception, may be watered down or set aside altogether in the name of life. Uh, and, uh, uh, and this reflects not only a this-worldly orientation, 
as opposed to an otherworldly orientation. It also reflects, I think, a Jewish proposition that may divide Judaism from certain kinds of Christianity. There is no theological value whatsoever attached to human suffering, none. There is no image of the suffering servant. Third, as you heard from this statement, uh, a distinctive stance towards the moral status of the, uh, of the embryo or of the fetus. Here again, one might go on for hours. Suffice it to say that Orthodox Judaism, uh, through, both, you know, through both the literal interpretation of the Torah and also through t- Talmudic disputation, defines really three phases uh, prior to 40 days where you know, a pre-embryo, whether implanted or not, has virtually no moral statement, status. Then, uh, then the period of the fetus uh, within the woman's body prior to birth, where it has an intermediate moral status, and then birth itself. And I could, I could run you through all of the different aspects of law or ritual uh, shaped by this trichotomy. The fourth and final theological proposition in this highly compressed statement from the Orthodox Union that I read you is, you know, to put it in the terms of moral philosophy, an attitude towards action that is far more consequentialist than it is deontological. Uh, and let me, let me just give you a flavor of this. Uh, uh, so, for example, you know, a prominent uh, Orthodox rabbi, uh, Barry Freundel, puts it this way, quote, human beings do the best that they can. If our best cost-benefit analysis says go ahead, we go ahead. God protects the simple is a Talmudic principle that allows us to assume that when we do our best, God will take care of what we could not foresee or anticipate. If things do not work out, the theological question is God's to answer, not ours. By contrast, uh, for example, John Cardinal O'Connor succinctly formulates the deontological stance of canon law as follows. Is cloning human beings morally permissible? Categorically, no. Now, this is the case study that I want to put before you for your consideration, where what I will call Traditionalist Catholicism and Protestantism take one stance, theologically rooted, on a basic moral question, which is also a question of public policy, and Orthodox Judaism, rooted in a tradition that partially overlaps and partially diverges from the two that I just mentioned, takes a very different stance on that question. In the last five or ten minutes, I want to try to tease out some of the political implications of this fact. What are the consequences that we should attend to? Well, the point of the case that I've just put on the table was not to offer a primer on rabbinic theology, but rather to underscore a simple contention, and that is that orthodox faiths that unite in resisting religious liberalism and cultural modernism may nonetheless disagree about the content of theology and about its social implications. The question then is how this fact should influence our understanding of the appropriate public role of religion. 
Now, I can sharpen this question by posing what appears, at least to me, to be a conundrum. If, as Father Newhouse insists, religion should shape public life, including public law, through the exercise of what he calls and is not alone to call public reason, then it would seem that the content of public reason is, in principle, accessible to the adherents of all faiths equally and to those who espouse no religious faith at all. Consider the famous phrase, the laws of nature and of nature's God. If so, then it is hard to see how religion, as opposed to philosophical natural law, is playing any distinctive public role. If, on the other hand, the content of a specific revelation is to play that public role, it can only be, or so it appears, by breaching the boundaries of public reason, as Father Newhouse defines it. Let this, lest this abstract formulation of the conundrum deprive it of argumentative force, let me be concrete. Uh, as we've seen, traditional Catholics have one understanding of the moral status of early-stage embryos, traditional Jews quite another. It's possible, I suppose, that unaided reason can settle this dispute, but the disputations of the past 30 years offer little evidence that this is so. It is more likely that the differing interpretations towards the embryo of these two great faiths represent disagreements rooted in the fundamentals of their respective theologies. Now, to find a public resolution to this problem, one might try to appeal to something between reason and revealed theology, namely our everyday moral experience. But alas, this changes the venue of the controversy without resolving it. Consider, for example, the outcome of the deliberations of President Bush's Council on Bioethics. While a 10-member majority of the council favored a moratorium on cloning for biomedical research, a seven-member minority would have permitted such research under suitable regulation. A noted conservative scholar, James Q. Wilson, joined the seven dissenters. His justification rested on an account of moral experience, a concept that he has done much to restore to public discussion. And here's what Wilson had to say. A fertilized cell has some moral worth, but much less than that of an implanted cell, and that has less than that of a fetus, and that less that of a viable fetus, and that the same as that of a newborn infant. My view is that people endow a thing with humanity when it appears or even begins to appear human, that is, when it resembles a human creature. The more an embryo resembles a person, the more claims it exerts on our moral feelings. Now, this last argument has no religious or metaphorical, metaphysical meaning, but it accords closely with how people view one another. This fact becomes evident when we ask a simple question. Do we assign the same moral blame to harvesting organs from a newborn infant and from a seven-day-old blastocyst? The great majority of people would be more outraged by doing the former than by doing the latter. No doubt others have different moral sentiments, and even if Wilson were right about the moral majority's view of the matter, would deny the relevance of counting heads to answer such questions, but that's exactly my point. While moral experience may provide an essential point of departure, it speaks with an ambiguous voice. For the record, I'll note the suggestive resemblance between Wilson's account of moral sense and the stance of traditional Judaism on that question. 
The implications of this apparently intractable disagreement for public law are stark. If the law permits the practices of stem cell research and therapy that traditional Jews believe should be allowed, then acts will proliferate that offend the beliefs of traditional Catholics. But on the other hand, if the law bans what Catholics believe to be intolerable, then it will prevent Jews from acting in ways that they consider commendable and in some cases of dire emergency, even mandatory. What is to be done? The honest answer to that question is I don't know. Uh, but let me offer you know, let me offer an argument which I advance with considerable hesitation for discussion. This argument takes as its initial premise the old Jewish principle that, quote, anything for which there is no reason to forbid is permissible with no need for justification. The second premise of the argument is that to justify the imposition of coercive public law across the boundary of diverse faith communities, only what Newhouse terms public reason counts as a reason to forbid a practice. By contrast, for individual faith communities, propositions based on specific revelation that are shared by the members of those communities but not by non-members rightly serve to justify morally and institutionally binding prohibitions within those communities. This argument takes its place within a pluralist understanding of the relation between faith communities and the political community. Through coercive public law, the political authority creates a framework that requires uniformity only on those essentials that public reason can justify. The remainder of the social space is filled by diverse communities, faith-based and secular, that enjoy the liberty to order their internal affairs based on their distinctive understandings of human purpose and ultimate meaning. Further, members of subcommunities can request and sometimes demand exemption from otherwise binding public laws when these laws command what faith or conscience prohibits or prohibit what faith or conscience demands. Clearly, this stance requires each subcommunity to accept the possibility that other members of their political community will act in ways that they find morally or religiously offensive unless they can justify their moral or religious views through the exercise of public reason as Father Newhouse defines it. For many, this counsel of restraint may seem to ask too much. But in circumstances of deep moral and religious pluralism, I find it hard to imagine an alternative that would not be worse. Thank you very much. Our first respondent is Professor Eddie Glaud, who is an associate professor of religion and African-American studies here at Princeton, where he also did his graduate work. He's written extensively on religion and race, and um, he'll be our first respondent. So much. Um, I want to thank the uh, James Madison program and, and, and Professor Robbie George for organizing this, this wonderful conference and, and providing me with an opportunity to, uh, to, to revisit Father Newhouse's The Naked Public Square. I'm from Mississippi, so I have to be mindful that I don't say naked. <laughs> <laughs> the naked public square. <laughs> uh, for some reason, for some reason uh, beyond me, I, this book generates a wide variety of emotional responses in me. 
I find myself, oddly enough, convinced by some of its arguments and thrown into fits of rage by others. But that's what many work, great works, I suppose, do. So again, I want to thank the program for providing me the occasion for a return visit to such a wonderfully provocative text. I also want to thank Professor Galston for his interesting and subtly provocative essay. Uh, uh, my task, obviously, here is to respond to the paper. And since this is my first time ever participating in a conference sponsored by the James Madison program, and, and I don't want to un, you know, wear out my welcome, I want to be mindful of things that I hate about respondents and what they tend to do. So first, I'll be brief. And my aim is really to provoke conversation. Now, what strikes me about Professor Galston's essay is that he at once worries about the, quote, excessive unitary account of reason offered by Father Newhouse and, if I'm right, appeals to it in the end as a response to the diversity of religious claims. Now, what do I mean by this? Professor Galston rightly notes that there are different kinds of religious claims, right? Those, in his words, that reason is fully competent to justify and those that derive their force at least in part from revelation. His point in making this distinction is to demonstrate that even those faith communities that unite in resisting liberalism may often or may offer very different theological reasons for their positions and may, in the end, disagree about substantive policy concerns based in those theological differences. His example of the Orthodox Jewish position on cloning demonstrates this, right? And I suppose one could say that one aim of this discussion in the paper is to show that not all religious adherents are natural lawyers, right? That many appeal to different sorts of authority to justify their public choices, their public acts, right? For example, the authority of revelation. Now, this is an important move, right? Because Professor Galston rightly calls our attention to Father Newhouse's insistence that Christian claims that have public implications must be accessible to public reason, right? On Newhouse's view, we Christians have an obligation to translate our commitments into terms accessible as far as possible to our fellows who happen not to hold those commitments. This worries Galston, of course, because in part such a view denies an important plurality and the possible conflicts that might emerge from such plurality among religious believers who are themselves critical of liberalism. And I take this to be the kind of Berlinian residue in your work. Now, this is fine as far as it goes. But I'm not, I'm not sure what to make of the conclusion he draws from this move uh, or to put the point more forcefully. I'm not sure how his conclusion helps matters. For Professor Galston goes on to say this, and this point is the crux of the problem as I understand it, and I want to, read, I want to quote it again. Uh, quote, if religion should shape public life, you remember that? Including public law through the exercise of public reason, then it would seem that the content of public reason is in principle accessible to adherents of all faiths equally and to those who espouse no religious faith as well. If so, then it is hard to see how religion, as opposed to philosophical natural law, is playing a distinctive public role. Can you all hear me? All right. 
On the other hand, if the content of specific revelation is to play that role, it could only be, re only be by breaching the boundaries of public reason, as Newhouse defines it, end quote. Now, his response to this problem is substantively twofold. Given his commitments to pluralism, his maximal feasible accommodation principle applied in this instance, he argues that we can only justify coercive public law across the boundary of diverse faith communities through public reason. Newhouse returns. Those who offer claims based on, say, revelation, however, those claims are only relevant and institutionally binding to those who share in the commitment. Propositions based on revelation matter only within the relevant communities. So in the end, only those Christians who like Father Newhouse can offer public arguments for their positions or allowed a public role in the sense of offering reasons, for example, for passing certain legislation as opposed to others. Others are regulated, relegated to their own communities, to talking with those at least, uh, to talking with those at least when they are invoking revelation or making a faith claim uh, to those who share their commitment. Now, we should remember Father Newhouse's words here. Quote, a public argument is not derived from sources of revelation or disposition that are essentially private and arbitrary. The perplexity of fundamentalism in public is that its self-understanding is premised upon a view of religion that is emphatically not public in character. Here he's quoting Alistair McIntyre's kind of description of fundamentalism as a kind of, uh, a kind of emotional, uh, how did you put it, a kind of emotive Moralism, as it were, right? Fundamentalism leaders, fundamentalist leaders rail against secular humanists for creating what I've called the naked public square. In fact, Newhouse goes on to write, fundamentalism is indispensable, is an indispensable collaborator in that creation, end quote. So even though Professor Galston chides Newhouse for failing to recognize the import of pluralism, in the end, Professor Newhouse's position becomes in some ways the default position, right? Fundamentalism still can't get a toehold in the public conversation. Maybe I'm wrong here, but I'm just trying to be provocative. Now, now, now but I, I, I do think that Professor Galston's conclusion is drawn in a rather interesting way, right? If I'm reading Professor Galston right, he questions the distinctiveness of religious claims that are, in fact, accessible to public reason. It becomes, on his view, very hard to distinguish what kind of public work religious claims are doing if someone who happens not to hold those commitments still has access to them. So if, as a Christian, the Beatitudes, for example, inform how I think about certain policy initiatives, and those commitments result in my support of particular policies that are compelling, say, to my left-leaning secular friend. On Galston's view, it is difficult to see how religion is playing a distinctive role here, right? Professor Newhouse, I mean, Father Newhouse's insistence on public accessibility results, again, if I'm right, in religion doing very little work in the public domain, at least on Galston's read. Now let me wrap this up because I'm beginning to ramble on a bit and to contradict my initial framing of my remarks. I think that Professor Galston sets out 
to correct Father Newhouse's, quote, excessive unitary account of reason, but in the end appeals to it as a response to the diversity of religious claims. Those who appeal to revelation are relegated to the remainder of social space filled by diverse communities attending to their internal affairs. And in doing so, Professor Galston limits religious voices in such a way that fails to address the disaffection with public life of many members of faith communities and results, at least it seems to me, in an anemic conception of, a pub of the public good. And we could talk about this, right? Beyond this, mm, beyond this point, I worry that these attempts quite liberal attempts to tidy up the mess of democratic conversation, particularly when it comes to religious claims. I worry that these attempts might result in bad faith on the part of many who hold religious beliefs based on revelation, who nevertheless want to impact public life beyond their specific communities. I worry that the Christian, like my evangelical sister, who, believe that, who believes that homosexuality is a sin and is prohibited by scripture, will not offer that as the reason for her opposition against same-sex marriage, but instead will appeal to some notion of the sanctity of marriage. I worry that it will lead folk, decent folk, with commitments that we may or may not agree with to mislead in order to secure their desired ends. And to my mind, that would be a terribly unchristian result. Thank you. Since the uh, symbology of religious or quasi-religious devotion is, I take it, encouraged in this, this conference, I thought I would begin by, uh, by wearing my uh, <laughs> we believe we believe <laughs> famous Jewish Catholic on top <laughs> that is absolutely unbridgeable the distinction between a Red Sox fan and a Yankee fan On my reading of The Naked Public Square, its main thesis might be expressed in this way. Human beings are not simply po politica zoa, animals that by nature are meant to live in political society, but also, one might put it, hosiastica zoa, animals that by nature show piety and worship, and that these two aspects of our nature are not at war but are ultimately complementary. Thus, I must confess a certain disappointment in the focus of Professor Galston's paper on a rather restricted matter of disagreement between Catholics and Orthodox Jews. This leads him to overlook various large themes which also engage questions of public reason. Consider the following important claims that Father Newhouse advances in his book. That American republicanism presupposes a virtuous citizenry but given some basic facts of human nature, people will not, on the whole and for the most part, as Aristotle would say, be devoted to virtue except through devotion to God. That modern liberal democracy presupposes for its healthy existence various mediating institutions, such as the family and churches and synagogues, which liberal democracy, however, regards as essentially illiberal. 
Therefore, modern liberal democracy tends to undercut the very re resources on which it depends. That because religious belief naturally and correctly looks for public expression, the realm of the secular and of the human, when correctly conceived, should be taken to include religious thought and affection. That is, any conception of secularity which excludes religion promotes only a fragment of human nature. Each of these themes raises interesting questions as regards public reason. For instance, do Father Newhouse's arguments themselves, once articulated, now count as public reason? That is, once we argue and perhaps even establish that typically people are devoted to civic virtue only through devotion to God, do we then have a public argument for the importance of the free exercise of religion? Presumably, the argument simply appeals to facts about our nature. Or again, why shouldn't arguments that appeal to God and to human beings as being in the image of God count as public reasons? Why can't there be an American civic religion embracing a sound understanding of secularity, which takes as its basic principles that God exists and that we have equal dignity because we are made by him? After all, the existence of God is something that perhaps can be established by reason. It is not clear that it cannot. Locke, of course, takes the law of nature to consist of these truths principally, and Lincoln, who speaks of the axioms of democracy, interprets the Declaration of Independence as containing such truths. If Locke and Lincoln do not articulate American public reason, then I don't know who does. And yet Galston, Galston's attention to just one narrow point of disagreement is revelatory. We might ask, if, as he suggests, disagreement blocks common public action, then contrarywise, does agreement license it? If so, then by all means, let's adopt as a shared basis for agreement the orthodox Jewish position on abortion, which allows abortion after six weeks of development only for the life of the mother or for serious health concerns of hers, and even before six weeks only on relatively restricted grounds. This view implies a public policy which would rule out 98% of all abortions and would take a considerable step forward in honoring the dignity of human life. I'd be more than happy to accept that compromise. Yet I suspect that Galston, Professor Galston would not, because he would view such agreement as no more than the confluence of essentially private views, much as if the members of a large crowd were all to agree in favoring vanilla ice cream over chocolate. That there were many such members hardly makes their ostensible agreement anything more than a rational preference, and certainly would not warrant the keeping of chocolate ice cream from the occasional chocolate lover. And here it seems to me that Galston misses the force of Newhouse's concern about translating private considerations into public reason, because his paper, in fact, provides an instance of what Father Newhouse is concerned about in his book. As Professor Glaude pointed out, Father Newhouse warns fundamentalists and conservative Christians against adopting an attitude as regards their faith that is an analog of emotivism. The perplexity of fundamentalism, I'm repeating a passage, a passage just quoted, in public life is that its self-understanding is premised upon a view of religion that is emphatically not public in character. Fundamentalism is the religious variant of what Alistair McIntyre calls modern emotivism. By emotivism is meant that state of affairs in which every moral statement is simply a statement of private preference. It has no inherently normative or public force. Professor Galston's paper, I think, shows this kind of self-understanding of religion. For instance, he wonders in a passage he didn't read at the beginning, but I'll 
I'll mention it anyway, whether the notion of public reason is fair as regards Protestants. Well, in the realm of ideas, fairness is what one appeals to when there is no issue of truth. Or he characterizes the concern of some believers over stem cell research as some people merely finding it offensive. They should, he says, accept the possibility that other members of their political community will act in ways that they find morally or religiously offensive, which Galston suggests is a kind of impulse or bias against which one should counsel restraint. But in a motivist understanding of religious belief is shown above all, I believe, in Professor Galston's apparently not entertaining the orthodox Jewish view as if it were true. Is it proposed as true that an embryo or fetus up until 40 days after conception has no humanity, and after 40 days it does? I suppose one needs to ask why this distinction is drawn, and in the rabbinical sources discussed in the material that Professor Galston cites, the answer given is that, according to the Talmud, an embryo or fetus before 40 days is mere water. But this is on its face false. It is false that a human being at any stage of gestation is merely water. Moreover, the view implies a contradiction. It is contradictory to assert the non-humanity of the fetus on the grounds that it is mere water in order to take cells or organs or body parts from it or to kill it since mere water has no such utility and cannot be killed. Furthermore, the drawing of the boundary itself is unreasonable and unsupported. There cannot be a sharp difference in moral status of the developing being in the womb without there being any corresponding difference in what that being is or is like, as the rabbis implicitly concede, since they recognize that the 40-day rule has to be justified by appeal to the difference in development between supposed mere water beforehand and not mere water afterwards. It is irrational to make a discrimination where none may justifiably be made. But there are not any sharp or dramatic differences in the development of a human being around the 40-day mark. So Professor Galston, I take it, does not propose the orthodox Jewish view as something that has a claim to be true. It would, however, be a mistake to generalize from this and suppose that all religious believers propose their views in the same way, or that all doctrines and all religions are understood in that same way. For instance, a common Christian view about stem cell research and abortion is that a Christian should, in these cases, advocate and defend simply what is reasonable to think about the matter, and it's most reasonable to think that the life of a human being begins at conception. I take it that this is roughly the understanding that the Catholic Church has of, of its own position. Professor Galston proposes a dilemma. A claim is either accepted by a believer only because it is taught by a religious authority and thus cannot be proposed generally as true, or it is accepted on reasonable grounds and therefore cannot be affirmed as a distinctively religious view. But this seems a false alternative. Many of the truths we now recognize as universally accessible and binding were once held only within particular religious faiths, such as the equality of all human beings. In some cases, practically speaking, we can notice that something is true only after our attention has been drawn to it, perhaps by a religious authority. Science works like this also. It is much easier simply to see the heliocentric theory of the, of the solar system as true after it has been proposed than to formulate that theory from the evidence on one's own. 
In other cases, a religious doctrine strengthens our grasp of or insight into or commitment to some prince, some, something that is in principle a generally accessible truth. And then, too, we are talking about practical reasoning here, not theoretical, where it is not enough for someone simply to grasp the truth, but also to seek it, embrace it, and prefer it to self-interest in its various forms. And one might wonder, too, whether some kind of religious outlook is not a precondition of wanting to find agreement. Father Newhouse has an interesting um, remark on page 110 of his book. Without a transcendent or religious point of reference, Father Newhouse says, conflicts of values cannot be resolved. There can only be procedures for their temporary accommodation. But how can these matters be sorted out? Not a priori, I should think, by some method or rule, such as Rawls's unsustainably narrow conception of public reason, which attempts to distinguish the publicly reasonable from the religious once and for all, but rather by by debate, advocacy, and dialogue carried out with civility and generous efforts at mutual understanding, but also honest criticism, all of which precisely is excluded from the naked public square. Thank you. Professor Galston, why don't you take about five minutes if, to respond, and then we'll open up to questions and answers. You know what? <clears throat> uh, my sense is that there are two choices here, either half an hour or zero. Okay. And I think we should go straight okay. to Q&A because this is a great group. Great. I, I have lots of opportunities to pursue these matters sure. privately. Okay. We're open for questions. Okay. First, by the students. Yes. Well, you know, as they say in Washington, um, thank you very much for asking that question. You know, because, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> uh, you know, because, you know, in, you know, in fact, you know, there is, you know, there is a question about reason alongside all of the questions that we've been discussing and debating for the, for the past hour. And, that, and in a part of my paper that I didn't have time to present to you, I talk about uh, different conceptions of how far unaided reason can go towards resolving uh, many of the the kinds of issues to which you just referred. Uh, I have published a book, and I'm about this month to publish another, uh, making a pluralist argument, you know, Isaiah Berlin is more than a residue. In fact, it's the long pole in the tent I'm building, uh, to the, you know, to the effect that on a wide range of moral, moral matters, at the end of the day, after reason has done all the work that it can do, the remainder may very well be 
a politically serious and significant level of, of disagreement rooted either in the incapacity of reason or the sorts of, the, the sorts of human incapacities that James Madison refers to in Federalist Paper Number 10, or, and these are not necessarily alternatives, they may be piled on top of each other, the possibility that the moral world that we happen to inhabit is organized pluralistically rather than hierarchically, where we have many ideals, many goods, but no single dominant ideal or dominant good for all purposes. In my view, that pluralist space is part of the definition of why politics is so humanly important. It is precisely a way of negotiating among and dealing with differences of those sorts. The outcome of those negotiations and those political processes may differ from time to time and place to place within a wide though not unlimited range. Uh, but, you know, but there is a very deep question as to the reach of reason, you know, particularly what Father Newhouse, John Rawls, and I, an interesting trio, are calling public reason. Uh, and I am somewhat less optimistic than others, including others, I believe, on this panel, about the capacity of reason and of people reasoning together to get to the end of that uh, end of that line. I will also say that I think that there is no general theory that tell of reason, you know, pace Kant. There is no general reason uh, theory of reason that tells you how far reason can get. In any particular case, it will be you know it will be a question of people reasoning together to see what happens. Uh, and I am certainly open to the possibility. I would be contradicting myself on its face. I'm certainly open to the possibility that questions that I and others regard as not rationally soluble may indeed be rationally soluble. In which case, uh, you know in in which case the conditions of the conditions of public reason or of reason for public purposes are fully realized. Another Princeton student question before we open it up. Okay, let's open it up. Yes. Well, uh, that's a good question, uh, and you know, I, I guess that what I'm you know, what I'm talking about is, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm defining that term through negation. <laughs> okay, uh, think of a faith-based value as. You know, a, an apprehension of you know an apprehension of value, whether of human value or value attached to something else about the world, the world or the cosmos, that is not fully apprehended or apprehensible through the exercise of public reason. Uh, and uh, you know there are uh, let me let me give you just to be really provocative, 
I've, you know, I think I've succeeded in, in annoying many people in the room already, but, uh, you know, in for a penny, in, in, for, a, in for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, you know, you know as, as a Jew, I can, you know, I can read the Gospels as literature, but not as authoritative. But I can certainly, I can certainly consider the moral image or the moral good encoded in certain kinds of propositions. And I find it instructive when what I run up against abrades a moral sensibility that I have. Uh, and it teaches me something perhaps about the limits of my own sensibility. So I'll give you an example. You know, there, there is a famous passage, and there are at least 100 people in the room who can correct me if I get this wrong, you know, where, you know, where a, young, you know, a young man is torn between his desire to follow Jesus wherever Jesus may lead and the immediate requirement of Jewish law to bury his father. And Jesus replies, I believe, let the dead bury their dead. Now, uh, I, will tell you, I will tell you how I respond to that. To me, that's shocking. I don't know how others respond. To me, that, that, is, that, that, that is shocking. You know, you know, a kind of, you know, a kind of brutal forcing of a choice that ought not to be forced, and more than that, a kind of denial of a good which, at least within the Jewish tradition, is very fundamental. Honoring thy father and mother cashed out, in part, as burying one's father appropriately with the appropriate honor, with the appropriate days of mourning, etc., etc. Now, I don't know whether this clash that I'm experiencing is a clash between a human good and two faith traditions. Let me assume, arguendo, that it's a clash between two faith traditions. We can, I think we can argue until the cows come home, you know, about, you know, the image of moral perfection of the moral good encoded in those two very different reactions to or practical imperatives directed to the fact of the dead father who either will or will not be buried by the son. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I know how that I know how to bridge that gap. I would be happy to have that discussion. But that's that's an example of what I have. Does that clarify the issue? Other well, <laughs> okay. Well, you know. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, in the back.
No. Well, I'm. I guess you. Know, I, you know, I guess I can't go down to the end of the road with you on on either of those points. Although I don't want to de deny the force of, of of either one either. Uh, you know, with. You know, with with regard with with regard to the first, uh, I think it's you know, and it is you know, <laughs> it is so ironic that I've spent you know I've spent twenty years criticizing John Rawls, and now I appear to end up in the same boat with him. But uh, and but but my argument is that I'm in good company because Father Newhouse is there with me, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, which may which may or may not be true. Uh, uh, that I, I think that we have at least a you know a rough a rough and ready idea of what natural reason is or isn't, and what sorts and and what sorts of what sorts of arguments arguments can be made, uh, and so the distinction you know. The distinction between the public and the private that I'm making that I'm making here is essentially, I take it, the one that Father Newhouse is making, and that is the distinction between the subjective and the transubjective. Uh, and you know, and by subjective, uh, you know, by subjective, I mean an appeal to a ground. And whether it is a purely internal emotivist ground, or whether it is a text that is that that is authoritative or taken to be authoritative, but which you know, but reasons for you know, reasons for the authoritativeness of which cannot be offered that will convince others you know, who do not accept the authoritativeness of that text in either you know, in. In either case, it seems to me one has one has the basis for this kind of distinction. Now, uh, with regard, uh, you know, with regard to the second part of your question, uh, it is not the case that I'm defining faith-based values as values where any two traditions happen to agree. Because you're absolutely right, empirically, that would be you know virtually the entire moral universe, or at least a large. A, a large part of it. Uh, did I say agree? I meant to say disagree. Uh, the point, you know, the point that I'm making, rather, is the capacity of natural reason, as I've as I've just defined it, uh, to allow us to make progress in resolving the disagreement. And you know, and, and if the argument in favor of a you know, of a particular interpretation of moral excellence, let us say, you know, if that argument is ultimately rooted in the proposition that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, uh, if that is the ultimate ground, 
then, uh, you know, then I think it is an example of what I'm talking about. Now, I don't know whether Professor Finnis is in the room or not. He's not here yet, but, you know, with his, you know, permission assumed, I will read a passage from the paper that he's going to present that, you, that offers a very interesting take on exactly this question. Now, where he says, we bring to our hearing of the preaching and assessment of its teachers and witnesses, that is, the, te you know, the, the you know, teachers and witnesses of a particular faith tradition, our prior understanding of human good, an understanding that is, as I, have, as I have argued, at root our natural reason. That's Professor Finnis's phrase. And we use that as a criterion in judging for ourselves the authenticity, the divine origin of what is being proposed and displayed to us. And so he is, you know, he is suggesting that in a way that's very reminiscent of Kant, who says that our image of moral perfection you know, is the basis of our judgment of the sayings of God, you know, even God himself, blessed be he, that the idea of natural reason is, you know, it is to the extent that it can allow us to make judgments about competing faith traditions the way to go. And when it can't, we are stuck. Let me give you, just to dramatize this from the Jewish point of view, uh, let me describe the issue suspended between two poles in the book of Genesis. Two famous examples. Uh, you know, where, where God says in a sort of an internal dialogue, shall I conceal from Abraham what I'm about to do? The about, what he's about to do is to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, and the answer is no. I shall not, given the fact that Abraham is to be the father of a great nation, I shall not conceal this from him. And God tells Abraham what he intends to do. Whereupon there is an extended, famous dialogue between Abraham and God about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And at one point, Abraham says, will God destroy the just along with the unjust? You know, heaven forbid that the judge of all the earth should do injustice. Now, what Abraham is saying there is that there is a criterion of justice and injustice available to natural reason that allows him to judge the justice even of the God Almighty himself. Okay? That's the first poll. The second poll, and it doesn't come very far long after, is a, you know, the voice of God coming to Abraham, telling him to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac. And without a peep... Abraham sets out on that famous silent three-day journey. Now, uh, the first, you know, the first pole is the, the, you know, what I'll call the criterion of rational obedience. The second pole is what I'll call the criterion of authoritative obedience. And what I'm suggesting is that the criterion of rational obedience is the way in which natural reason can enable us to adjudicate between or among faith traditions. And the other one is going to produce uh, various sorts of particularity 
between or among which mediation will be very difficult. Help me in showing our appreciation to these panels for this terrific presentation today and responses. <laughs> Should we take the 30-minute break, Robbie, and get us back on schedule so that we start? Should we go ahead and take our 30-minute break and get back on schedule, or did you want to entertain a few more questions? Okay. Okay. Extended just a, a bit longer, okay. Hadley, I think you had your hand up. First, I want to say that Professor Cloud is Mr. Amos. I have to take you back. Bill, how would you answer some of these pointed criticisms? Uh, Let me just pick up on one of them. Um, Michael's um, comment that if we don't credit the recent claim that the the embryo of 40 days is in water, um, then we don't have an an intractable problem. That matter is amenable to reason. Mm -hmm. Jim Wilson's theory of, of sentiment, um, we, protect, we protect that embryo, we, we, we take pictures of the uh, unborn child at the age of eight to ten weeks, it, it looks like us, we protect it. So Kant had that warning that we don't treat even a unanimity of feeling as a surrogate for a moral judgment. Mm-hmm. Even if a hundred Well, uh, you know the the point that I was the point that I was making. Well, first of all, the question, and I'll say this for the third time, the question of whether or not a given dispute is or is not intractable is not one about which a grand Kantian theory of the capacity or incapacity or selective capacity or incapacity of reason is going to. It's not going to allow us in a particular case to resolve the question of whether an issue is intractable or not. Uh, That is, you know, a philosophical example of an empirical question. A question is resolvable if it can be resolved through reason and not otherwise. Would you agree with that? No, no. No, no. What I'm I'm saying is that when you're... when you're presented with any given conflict, the question of whether or not that conflict can be resolved through rational argument is not known a priori. So, 
or, or let me. Well, since you don't think that it's true, you know Sure. But in order to know whether something is, in order to know whether something is true of necessity, you need to take a look at it, right? You know, the question of whether, the question of whether a particular truth is, is necessarily true, whether it's a truth of logic or truth of mathematics uh, or some other kind of truth, you know when you take a look at it to determine what kind of truth it is. And... No, no. We're using. I'm sorry. You know, I was. I was afraid of this. That we're using the term empirical in two different senses. I'm using the. I'm using the term. You know, I'm using the term empirical. You know, empirical in an extended sense. I do not mean to say apprehendable through the senses. That's not. You know, that, that's not the sense. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that. Let me put it as conservatively as possible. For a very wide range of important disagreements, the question of whether a particular disagreement can be fully resolved through reason or not cannot be determined a priori, but only by inspecting the contours of that particular controversy. That's what I mean. And... No, uh, because it is a you know, it is you know, it is offered as a it's offered as a description of the real world of argument in which we happen to be located, and we can you know we can have a discussion we can then have a discussion of that. At any rate, uh, next question. You know, no, no, no. Uh, you know, but <laughs> you know, but let me just you know. This is one of those intractable questions. Uh, we're discovering yeah. that. But let me just you know, <laughs> let me just you know, let me just say for the pur for the purpose for the purposes of argument, you know, in offering as a general cri general criterion, you know, of judgment or of distinction, cases where nat natural reason allows us to make progress towards resolution, and cases cases where it doesn't. I am opening myself up to the possibility that a case that appears not to be on further inspection may be. That's fine. You know, it, it, you know I, I don't have the Kantian purpose of denying the capacity of reason in order to make room for faith, right? All I mean, all I mean to suggest is that, uh, you know, we have, to attend, we have to attend to the possibility, a possibility to which Father Newhouse himself has alerted us, you know that these questions have these questions have different forms. That's all. Chris, our last question. Mm -hmm. What is the specific criterion of whether something is intractable once you get into it? Something. I think some of you in your papers have said ultimately that you think the stem cell research question ultimately is intractable through natural reason. So, what would be the criterion to decide whether? of public reason, which is, well, just a lot of us really disagree on this and can't get to an agreement. Therefore, it must not be capable of being tractable public reason. And that just goes nowhere. That's, that's just, that, I don't think that has any basis at all. Uh, because at different historical times,
That's fine, right? And so, given given what I given what I said about the empirical, you know, rather than metaphysical definition of intractable intractable disputes, you know, we can spend the rest of the conference working on that problem. I'd be happy to, and we'll see where we'll see where we are. Uh, and you know, I, I can hardly be com you know I can hardly be committed to the view at the threshold that natural reason is incompetent to resolve that disp dispute, and that's not my position. Right? Uh, I will say you know I will say, however, uh, that the uh, you know that the you know the four the four propositions. You know, into which you know, you know, into which I decomposed the statement from the Orthodox Union, cut very deep from a Jewish theological point of view, and you know, and I will say, I will say also the, you know, the stance, you know, the stance towards moral action, embedded in the Orthodox tradition, as I understand it, which is far closer to a consequentialism call it as a utilitarianism of the human good, you know, rather than a philosophy with, you know, a moral stance with a lot of deontological side constraints on consequentialism is, I am convinced, an accurate interpretation of the Jewish, the Orthodox Jewish tradition. And that is a distinction with a difference. Uh, because, you know, be, because, you know, what, you know, what you're comparing, there is, rather than a principle of estoppel, you know, what you're talking about is a moral balance sheet where certain, th you know, where certain things that may not be good in themselves may be counterbalanced by the good that can be ac accomplished by doing them. Which makes everything intractable in the long run. No, it doesn't make it. You can't really give an account. Ultimately. Well, yes, you can. But no, but you can, you can give an account, uh, and, you know, the statement of the Orthodox Union does give an account, uh, an account, you know, which has as one of its component, you know, an interpretation of what it means to be created in the image of God. Uh, second, an interpretation of some very great and fundamental goods and evils from the Jewish theologi theological standpoint. And, you know, I, I meant to provoke when I said in my account of the third proposition that the Jewish stance is far more this-worldly than otherworldly. Jews typically do not take the position that something bad that happens now is compensated for by what happens in the hereafter, although there is some rabbinical evolution on that question. And there is no theological or human value attached to suffering. And so the question of the alleviation, the question of, the alleviation of suffering in the Jewish tradition does a whole lot of work. And it may be, you know, it may be sufficient to counterbalance considerations which in other traditions would be dispositive. 
this may be a good point to stop because we really are getting way behind. Thank you all so much. And if you would like to come up and talk to them, I'm sure they're available. But.